This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hey everyone, got a special case here doing something different than our usual format. I'm sitting next to someone I really look up to. His name's Dr. Ali Hamoud. He's a second year here at Northwestern and fun fact, he was one of my first seniors when I started here as an intern. And we've just had a great month together on general medicine, working together. And we also live by each other. So we've become friends for many reasons outside of work. And I'm excited to have him as a discussant, which, as you guys know, if you've listened, is different than our normal format. But but he is a very cerebral person and is really fun to listen to. And I've learned so much from him, you know, in just the short few months I've learned or have had the opportunity to know him. But I'll let him say a few words. Thank you, Kevin. I'm also really lucky to be sitting across from somebody I really look up to. Kevin was my first intern, and it's been really good to to get to know him both at work and then outside of work. And I really lucked out to have him again here on here on General Medicine. So my name is Ali Hamoud, as Kevin mentioned. I bleed maize and blue. I went to Michigan for undergrad and med school and then moved here to Chicago to start at Northwestern in residency last year in I guess June 2021, so almost two years ago now. As far as my career, I'm interested in pursuing cardiology fellowship after finishing residence, and I, I've really loved it here in here in Chicago and at Northwestern. For fun, I, I like to, to work out in the mornings. I brought Kevin over to my gym <laughs> a couple weeks ago, and, and we did leg day together at 5 o'clock in the morning before coming into work. I also like being outside, so I'm looking forward to the Chicago summer coming up soon and the weather turning soon, hopefully. Well, thanks, Ali. I think you guys will all hear in a, a second why I really wanted to have Ali do this, but this is a case I saw as a medical student, and I think we're just going to go with it. So in, in usual format, Ali, this patient, is in his early 40s. He presented to the hospital after having a seizure-like episode. He, when he got to the hospital, was alert and oriented times three, was conversational, and then subsequently had three more of these episodes while in the ED that were described as generalized tonic-clonic seizures. So I guess just thinking through what I, what I think about when I hear about seizures, what I want to know is more than just hearing generalized tonic-clonic seizures, what did the patient look like, especially after the seizure? How long did the incident last? How, how, did, the, how did it resolve? Was it kind of medication abortion or was it medically aborted or was it just kind of spontaneously resolving? Mm-hmm. Then I also think about my exam after the, after the event, how does the how does the patient's neurologic exam? Are there any deficits on the neuro exam in this relatively young person presenting with new seizures? You worry about some sort of mass. It has to be it has to be on your differential, though he's forty. And then Yeah, so it sounds like you want some information to kind of characterize the seizure a little more. It sounds like you're also looking for what he's like after the seizure. And I kind of interpret that as like, is there an ictal period? Or does this like kind of fall or push you towards a seizure mimic category? Right. Yeah. I think the whether the patient's postictal or not is going to be really important. That the fact that this kind of came on so suddenly is at, at forty is kind of atypical when I think about seizure disorders yeah. in general. 
So broad bucket differential sounds like maybe primary neurologic. What other categories are we considering, you think? Yeah, so I think primary neurologic would be one. Another one would be inflammatory, infectious, malignant. And then psych has to be has to be a consideration. Yeah. NES could present just like this. Yeah. So there's kind of certain things that you're looking for to differentiate those. All right, let's add some some layers to this. He has a past history of sickle cell disease. He's hemoglobin SS. His history of sickle cell has been complicated by an episode of acute chest. He had his spleen removed, his gallbladder removed, and he's had seizures before. He's also has other past medical history, including cardiomyopathy, pulmonary hypertension, kidney disease. He's had DVTs before. Otherwise, in the preceding weeks to months, he's been in his usual state of health. They did do a non-con T of his brain while he's down in the ED, and it mentioned a possible small lacunar infarct in the left cere cerebellar hemisphere. Yeah, so as, as soon as I heard sickle cell disease, my mind jumped to ischemic events. So patients with sickle cell are at much higher risk for ischemic stroke than, than other patients are, and ischemic events can cause seizure disorders. The other thing that you worry about sickle cell disease is functional asplenia, where patients are at really high risk for infection with in mm -hmm. from encapsulated organisms. So, and those organisms also tend to cause meningitis. So thinking about meningitis and meningoencephalitis being the cause for some of these symptoms, I'm really interested in knowing how the patient looks, what the patient's vital signs are, how stiff their neck is. Yeah. All right, let's, I'll give you some of that. We'll, st we'll start objectively. His vitals, he is febrile to 102.4. He's tachycardic to 114 and hypertensive to 180s over 100. He's saturating 90% on three liters. On physical exam, he was alert and oriented times one at this point. It was noted that he had a blown right pupil. His neck was non-tender. The, the rest of the exam, including cardiac, respiratory, abdominal, were, were unremarkable. His neuro exam was really difficult to assess, but there were no obvious focal motor deficits noted. A little bit more, some initial lab data. He had a leukocytosis to 28 and a hemoglobin to 6.7, which is baseline for him. His electrolytes, mild hyponatremia to 127, hypokalemia to 3.2. His bicarb was 14. His BUN was 66, his creatinine was 4.3, T-Billy 9.5 with some transaminitis. He was started on empiric vancomycin at this time. So that's an interesting choice of antibiotics. Piptazo has poor neuropenetration. I think that I would I'd jump to either vancomycin and ampicillin or vancomyropenem for this patient and empirically cover him for for meningitis, even without the nuchal rigidity. This is a patient who's coming in with new new seizures, really new CNS symptoms, extremely high leukocytosis at 28 and, and really febrile, kind of arriving to us on fire. He's super tachycardic. He's not hypotensive, but that for me really doesn't rule out an infection in any way. So I think as far as things that I, I need to rule out and need to treat, meningitis is is, is really high up there. His AKI is interesting. I don't know, I don't know why he has an AKI. I don't know the chronicity of that. And then we kind of glossed over it, but he has a blown pupil. Yeah. And I think I want to know the the chronicity of that blown pupil. Make yeah. sure it's 
not new. And if it is new, I really want neuro on board and I really want probably better neuroimaging than a non-contrast CT brain. I also need to know if this patient is protecting their airway. Yeah. It sounds like they're ANO times one, but a lot of thoughts going through my head right now. Yeah. I think listeners, you can get a sense that diagnostically Ali's navigating this case expertly was also layering on kind of treatment in the moment too. You got to remember your ABCs. This person is we're concerned that something might be going on intracranially. Are they able to protect their airway? We've got to make sure we're addressing that while in the moment trying to think of what is causing this. I think Ali is focused on some interesting salient features of the case already. And we're just going to keep building on it. So yeah, the blown people, go ahead. I think the one other thing we mentioned encapsulated organisms and we're mentioning meningitis and the treatment for meningitis, you, you honestly, you need to treat you often need to treat it before you can get, get your diagnostic data. Yeah. And I, I think that, that with this patient who's coming in with nothing but fevers, looking infected and new seizures, I'm, I'm starting this patient on steroids as well okay. before we even get more data. So the blown people was concerning and led to a, another repeat deep brain, which was unchanged, no ICH at least. Other imaging, they did a chest x-ray, no acute changes compared to priors. They checked his urine, no signs of infection, no RBCs, no WBCs. His, they did some basic infectious workup. HIV was negative. Thingly, they tested for HSV 1 and 2, and HSV 2 was positive, but 1 was negative. Don't know the time frame of, of either of those, but... Is this a PCR or...? It was the, a PCR. He had no, like, genital or oral skin changes. TB workup was negative, and then blood cultures were sent. Okay, it sounds like we've started down a, a general diagnostic path for infection, but the, the thing that I'm wondering about is the... I'm going to repeat that. Okay, so hearing that, it sounds like we've ruled some things out that, that you worry about, and then HSV2 positivity, it sounds like PCR positivity... Uh, you worry about HSV encephalitis, which you would not pick up on a CT brain. Mm -hmm. And then really, really everything that I'm seeing tells me that we need, we need an LP on this patient yeah. and an LP with an opening pressure will, will be helpful here. I also think we need more advanced neuroimaging. And I guess I wonder, is this patient still having more seizures at this stage or has that kind of cooled off a little bit? Yeah. But, yeah, I think all great thoughts. I think we are certainly on the infection train, keeping other things in the back of our mind, but I think the one that would need most urgent, need to be most urgently addressed is infection. You've mentioned many, many risks this patient has for infections and different types of infection. You've also talked about how you would, how the management for those because of this history is different. Just a little clinical update. So patient I mentioned, there was periods where he was alert and oriented. Now his mental status is completely, just continued to worsen. He's ANO times three, he's much more lethargic on exam. Kind of serial labs, his creatinine was acutely worsening. A CK was checked, it was 127,000. Did some urine lights, protein creatinine, repeated AUA, and findings were suggestive at that point for ATN, likely secondary to rapto. So I'm not sure if that changes anything for you. I think we've we've mentioned a few things on a differential. We've mentioned infection, primary neuro. I think the one 
one category we maybe neglected to include was toxic metabolic or, or drug reactions. I, I, of course, wasn't wasn't there to witness the events, but yeah. thinking about things like NMS, I don't know what risk factors he has, what medications his patients that that would that would put them at risk for that. And then also malignant hyperthermia. You could see kind of this this degree of CK elevation. Yeah. You expect some CK elevation with, with seizures in general, but 127,000 isn't bit more than I would I would yeah. I would expect just just from that. Yeah. What All was right. the could you remind me what was the CBC on this patient and where was it relative to baseline? The CBC was cytosis to 28 and a hemoglobin of 6.7 baseline 6 to 7. Okay. And then the LFTs, did we have those? Yeah, just mild AST ALT elevation. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about forgetting that. It's okay. So I think we've been heading this direction and Ali's alluded to having an LP done. And I think the clinical suspicion at the time was also very high for something intracranial and meningitis on the differential. So I'm going to, Ali's oh, in the hot seat now. Sorry, the, this patient needs to be on acyclovir. Yeah. And yeah, that, that. All right. Yeah. So what's, what's your empiric antibiotics at this point? So empiric antibiotics for, for meningitis in, in all patients, in almost all patients should be thanks ceftriaxone and ampicillin, especially if you're suspecting bacterial meningitis. That's most hospitalized patients, there's kind of different different risk factors for listeria that that you think about age over 65 being immunocompromised. I think in pediatrics you you can see listeria, especially newborns. But I I, I just tend to cover for it when when I interact with meningitis because I fortunately don't have to interact with meningitis too much as an internal medicine resident. Yeah. In fact, the last time I did was with with Kevin on on another service. So. I, I always cover empirically with things of and ampicillin when people are coming from the community as far as bacterial coverage. Other coverage you'll want is going to be acyclovir for HSV, mm-hmm. viral, meningoencephalitis. And then I, I do not empirically cover for any fungal causes of, of meningitis. Really cool fact about my favorite antibiotic, miropenem, is that... Hey, there's Ali. Hey. Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will. Yep. Thank you. Bye. She's coming here, too. What was I saying? A fun fact about miropenem. So, yeah, fun fact about miropenem, my my favorite antibiotic, is that it it actually covers listeria in the CNS, pretty much as well as ampicillin does. So there's really no need for dual beta-lactam coverage when you have miropenem on board. It also provides anti-pseudomonal coverage in the CNS. Pseudomonal meningitis is uncommon, but you'll want to cover for it in hospitalized patients, especially hospitalized patients who got recent neurosurgery. And I think, and don't quote me on this, that a VP shunt is also an indication for pseudomonal coverage empirically in, in meningitis. Papercillin tazobactam, which this patient was initially started on, um, doesn't doesn't really have that coverage, but it's a, a reflex. I think in the past week, I've gotten five to 10 patients admitted to us on, on Vink and Piptazo. And I think that's really the, the only place where, where, where that doesn't, doesn't help out as much, yeah. but yeah, empirically I, I would be doing Traxon, Ampicillin and Acyclovir for most patients with meningitis. Okay. All right. We're down to our last aliquot and this isn't something we do often, but Ali's going to interpret some LP studies. So the color was noted to be moderately xanthochromic, was hazy appearing. There was 320 white blood cells, 50 RBCs. The differential on that was 80, 80% lymphocytes, and that was tube number four. 
blood cultures returned, growing gram-positive rods. So initial interpretation of the CSF, you can break it down. I can repeat anything if you need to. So there were 320 whites, which in my mind, I kind of put in, there's probably a bacterial infection. It was 80% lymphocytes, uh, yep. which, which kind of goes against that in my mind, because I, I typically think of bacterial infections as having a neutrophilic predominance. So when can you hear that, that combination, I, I think about really bad viral mm -hmm. uh, disease. And then I also think about, is there some other inflammatory condition that could cause this? Yeah. The xanthochromia, I'm not totally sure what to do with. The blood cultures are growing gram-positive rods. Yeah. There's, whenever I see gram-positive rods in a blood culture, I usually just don't believe them and think that someone missaw gram-negative rods because they're so much more common. Yeah. But when you think of gram-positive rods, I think listeria is a gram-positive rod. Yeah. And we covered this patient for listeria yeah. earlier earlier in our course. I, I just I cannot I cannot wed the eighty percent lymphocytes with listeria meningitis unless there's something I don't know about it, which yeah. is very likely because I've never taken care of someone with listeria meningitis. All right, well that's the information we got. So I'm gonna you gotta put your nickel down, final diagnosis, and or or what would your remaining workup be to get to that final diagnosis? Theoretically, the cultures will result with a species yeah, in the next will. 24 hours or so. But I, I think that this patient probably has listeria, monocytogenes, meningitis, causing seizures, fever, white blood cell, or leukocytosis. And, and that's why they're here. Yeah. And they need to be on directed therapy for that, which is ampicillin. Well, fantastic. Dr. Hamoud, PCR returned positive for listeria monocytogenes. The gent and amp ampicillin were added to, to his treatment and remarkable improvement within days. He was treated for a total of three weeks and returned re resolution of symptoms, abnormalities, and his mental status improved back to baseline. So when you're treating listeria meningitis, it's a combination of ampicillin and gentamicin for the directed therapy? I think for directed therapy, from what I best remember from this case, yes. I okay. think what was missed initially was the concern for listeria, and oh. they weren't covered for it initially. It was just Piptazo and Vank. Right. You astutely mentioned adding on ampicillin as meningitis coverage. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of discussion about why does this person have listeria? It's not a common bug we see. There was a lot of thought. I remember trying to make a connection of does his history of sickle cell disease put him at risk for listeria? Did he drink raw milk? Yeah. So, you know, our infectious disease colleagues got some history that he was eating meat from a deli tray for, at Costco and thought maybe that that was the source. But otherwise, there was like no, no outbreaks at the time. No one else in the hospital had it. Didn't get a, a real good answer for, you know, why he developed it, but I think he was treated, got better, returned to baseline. You really astutely, I think, Aliquatu jumped onto the meningitis train and took in his risk factors. You covered him really early on, earlier than he was covered. So that was cool. You have any reflections on the case? I I think that I, I think I, I learned a lot about the 
the LP honestly was was really surprising yeah, oh, to me. Yeah, that's something I so yeah. Listeria is an intracellular organism. Oh. And is one of the bacteria that can cause a lymphocytic pleocytosis on CSF studies. What was the differential on the on the the serum? The serum was neutrophil predominant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which which makes sense because it was a bacterial infection. Yeah, I mean my reflection is this patient had meningitis without nuchal rigidity. Yeah. Uh, and we we're always like they need to have nuchal rigidity. They have to have headaches. We we learn a, a we learn a description of someone with meningitis in in med school, and all this patient really had was was fevers and CNS symptoms. I I do wonder what ID wanted to do about the HSV positivity in the serum. I, I know that's yeah. not really specific, but I, I imagine the PCR on the CSF was CS. sent for HSV as well. It was and it was negative. Okay. And I think it it was. The red herring at the time. The AKI, was that attributed to critical illness and sepsis? Or Yeah, it was. I think it was actually, he kept having such recurrent seizures causing CK elevation that led to rhabdo okay. causing an ATN. And that just yeah. kind of showed up laboratory-wise a little bit later. Did he dialysis at any point? Did not need emergent dialysis. I think with fluids and, you know, better control with aborting his seizures, his rhabdo and then ATN resolved. And I'll assume, given how many seizures he had in the emergency department, yeah. was this patient admitted to neuro ICU or uh, medical ICU? Medical actually. ICU. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But ICU setting. Yeah, ICU setting. And yeah. was he ever intubated? He was not intubated. Okay. Yeah. Wow. No, this is a, a really cool case. I think, like, I, I just think about the first aid page with these are the risk factors for listeria, yeah. and, and this when you cover them, and I. I kind of mentioned early on that I, I cover most people with meningitis, with listeria coverage, even without kind of having all those risk factors. This patient is has sickle cell disease and they are immunocompromised, but adding ampicillin onto a regimen with vancomycin and ceftriaxone, you're really not. I, I consider myself to an extent to be a, a steward of antimicrobials, but you're really, really not adding causing too much harm yeah. and, and you're potentially catching that. I will say with um, ampicillin, ceftriaxone, any any additive beta lactams, you run into you run into lowering the seizure threshold. There is there is that risk, but when your suspicion for meningitis is this high, you you need to treat broadly until you can narrow. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad I got to sit down with you and talk about this case. This past month's been so fun and hope you guys enjoyed listening to Ali. Yeah, I had I had a blast with with you, Kevin, both with this uh, this podcast and then past months been one of the highlights of residency. <laughs> so no, I've I've really appreciated working with you, learning from you, and always surprising myself when I'm able to to teach you anything. <laughs> <laughs> and he teaches me a lot. I promise. No, th- thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and I'll I'll look forward to signing out our list soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. All right, bye. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.